from CITI program, I'm Darren Gaddis, and this is On Research. Today, I spoke with Matt Jans, lead statistician for the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey at the National Center for Health Statistics. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to provide legal advice or guidance. You should consult with your organization's attorneys if you have questions or concerns about relevant laws and regulations discussed in this podcast. Additionally, the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the guest and do not represent the views of their employer. Hi, Matt. Thank you for joining me today. Great great to be here. Thanks for having me. To get us started today, what is your educational and professional background? I actually had a psychology major and a social minor in college. I did a master's degree in developmental psych right after college, and then I worked for a few years in survey research, running surveys, developing questionnaires, drawing samples, things like that. And I knew that I would want to get a PhD at some point, but I didn't know what field I would want to get it in. And while I was working in that job, this was at UMass Boston, I learned that there were PhDs programs in survey methodology. So I ended up going back to school after about five years of work and getting my PhD in survey methodology from the University of Michigan. To help ground our conversation today, what is survey research and when should it be used? That's a good that's a good question. Survey research means a lot of different things to different people and it depends on where you learned it. So if you learned survey about survey research through statistics, you probably think of it as sampling and that part of an estimation and variances of statistics and things like that. And if you learned about it, from the social science side or psychology or fields like that, you you probably think of it more of questionnaires. But in a nutshell, our field of survey research or survey methodology, as we call it sometimes, actually has both parts. And to every type of science has a measurement technique and a sample. But in survey methodology, we formalize those a little bit more. For example, for a survey methodologist, We don't just have any measurement technique. We have usually a questionnaire or an interview protocol that has standardized questions. And I should back up a second and just say here, we're talking mostly about quantitative surveys, not qualitative research, although some surveys that are mostly quantitative can have qualitative questions in them. So that's the measurement part. And the other thing that survey methodologists usually mean when they talk about having a sample is that they mean that um, you're drawing a sample uh, where the probabilities of selection are known for each unit in that popu- in a population, and that the population is very defined. So in some sciences, uh, you'll hear people vaguely reference a general population or a broader population, but in operation, they don't actually define their population. For example, they don't say adults who lived in the United States as of July 1st, 2023, that kind of thing. The one caveat I should probably make early on too, and we struggled with this a little bit in the course and and how to talk about different types of surveys, is that not all surveys are of people. Some surveys are of businesses or institutions. We usually call those establishment surveys. But for the most part, if you hear me say respondents or people, you can mentally fill in that those people could be a business or somebody responding on behalf of a business or a family or a group or something like that. In survey research, is consent always required? And how does a researcher acquire consent from research participants? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'll go out on a limb and say that that depends. You'll hear a lot in when we talk about survey research and survey methodology that uh, almost every question has an it depends answer to it. And what it depends on is the amount of risk to the participant or the respondent that's involved and the amount of freedom that the respondent has to not be engaged with the studies. In a lot of research studies that aren't surveys, lab studies or things like that, you have populations of people that don't have a lot of choice. They might be children, they might be students who are administered a questionnaire in a school setting, things like that. Uh, People in medical research that they hear about through their doctor, they don't have as much choice of participation as the general population does when it comes to surveys. In surveys, usually we're sending a, a letter to a home or a business, we're calling people on the phone, we're sending an email. And so the people can that we sample can always ignore those emails, phone calls, or knocks on their doors. And what you'll see sometimes is IRBs or other human subjects approval bodies will exempt surveys depending on the amount of contact that you have with the people you're trying to recruit and the questions that you're asking. So if you're not asking very sensitive questions, it's possible that your survey might actually be exempt from from having any amount of consent involved in it. Now, all that aside, it is best practice to inform people. There's the issue of recording consent and informing of consent. And Good survey researchers will always inform respondents about the potential risk, the amount of time the questionnaire is going to take, the topic, things like that, who they can contact if they have a problem or not. But surveys as a whole are conducted by a wide range of organizations from government agencies to universities to polling companies, marketing companies. And the amount of consent and ethics oversight varies widely across those types of organizations. And some companies that I hesitate to say for-profit companies, but the world is split into organizations that are governed by ethics groups like academics and government researchers and things like that. And then there's a middle group of private sector and maybe public companies who follow those same guidelines, but aren't necessarily overseen by similar IRBs. Although all the companies I've worked with have had IRBs of some sort. And then other kinds of companies that don't have any kind of ethical oversight or IRB. Anybody can buy a list of random numbers or walk around and knock on doors. And uh, and so one of the problems our, our field faces is distinguishing unethical research and from uh, ethical research. Not to say that all those companies that are not covered by IRBs are doing things unethically. They just don't have that same standard burden and approval burden in their and uh, their research practice. I hope that helps answer the question. Absolutely. In from your opinion, when you design a survey research project, what differentiates a good survey question from maybe a potentially bad survey question? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's, like I mentioned before, there's always two parts of a survey. There's the questions, or sometimes we call them survey items. They might not be grammatically worded as a question, but they're something that the respondent is supposed to answer or fill in some information about. And then there's the sample. So in terms of good questions, usually survey questions will flow from some kind of research question. So like I just mentioned, not all surveys are done in a a traditional academic research context. So there aren't always research questions and hypotheses like you would see on an NIH proposal or, or grant. It might be more of a, a practical problem. So maybe your company in your your company, you're an executive and you hear that your staff has low morale right now. And so you, you have a research question that you want to know, A, does, is that true amongst all your staff? So you can sample systematically, get a representative sample and ask questions about morale. 
And B, what are the details of that morale? Is it due to long hours? Is it due to work demands and things like that? So once you've figured out what those research questions are, that's always a good place to start with surveys, just like any other kind of research project. Um, you can figure out what your survey questions should be. And so when you get to the point of actually gathering survey questions that have already been written or writing your own questions, there's a number of guidelines, and we handle this in the course in detail. But some of the things that, that make a good question are asking about one concept at a time. It's real easy to write what we call double-barreled questions, where the question asks more than one thing in one sentence, one grammatic question. So an example of that would be, would you like to be rich and famous? You might want to be rich and not famous. You might want to be famous, but you don't care if you're rich. So how does a person answer that? So one question, one concept at a time in every question is a good standard. Usually we don't want questions to be hypothetical. People don't do a great job of answering things that they would do in a situation or might do in certain, in, in certain situations. It depends there. The caveat there is that sometimes hypothetical scenarios can be used for attitude measurement, but they have to be couched in that context to be useful. And for the next couple of points, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a distinction between attitude questions and behavioral questions or experience questions. So think of these as questions about opinions or questions about facts and personal facts. Um, for attitude questions, there's a lot of research in the literature showing that they're really susceptible to bias, for lack of a better word, due to the context, meaning where they're put in a questionnaire, the questions that come before them or after them, how they're worded, things like that. When you're writing attitude questions, you want to make sure you have to be very careful that they're not leading the respondent one way or the other. One check on a good attitude question is whether it's balanced, just literally balanced in the phrasing of the questions. If you were going to write a question asking about a particular opinion or attitude, you might say, as some people think X, that's opinion number one, others think Y, that's opinion number two. So you're just saying that this range of opinions are out there. Which position better represents your opinion? Rather than just asking if people disagree or agree with a particular opinion or like setting up a phrasing that would lead them to think that opinion was the right opinion to have. So that's the kind of stuff to be careful with attitude question. For behavioral and experience questions, one of the biggest challenges or, or mistakes that I see in, in questionnaires that I look at is that it's easy to ask about questions without thinking about whether the respondent has experienced the thing you want to know about first. So if they haven't experienced, if they haven't driven a car before, or they haven't driven a pickup truck, let's say, you can't ask them questions about what it feels like to drive a pickup truck or what they liked about the last time they drove a pickup truck. So you always want to check your questions for making sure that it's something that respondents you're going to ask have had an experience with. But that's a little bit different for attitude questions because people may have a preformed attitude, but if they don't, they can also develop that on the spot once they're asked. But for behavior questions, if they haven't had the experience, any answer they would give wouldn't be worth too much. And so we usually deal with that by skip patterns or filter questions. So you'll ask a question about, have you ever driven a pickup truck first? And then the questions about your experiences the last time you drove a pickup truck. Another challenge with factual behavioral questions is figuring out what the appropriate time frame and the question framing is for the cognitive demand of the question. So Opinion and attitude questions usually aren't too cognitively demanding unless they're 
worded in a goofy way and the grammar is unclear and they're double barreled and things like that. But with behavioral questions, asking about doctor visits that you've had or your income, things that are facts and experiences, there's usually something that you should be able to answer this if you tried hard enough. And it's real easy to ask people questions that are way too hard to answer. So for example, there's a common question out there for tobacco use that asks, have you smoked at least 100 cigarettes in your lifetime? And it might not be the perfect question. It implies that people have counted up to 100 cigarettes, but in context, it's not really taken that way. And you can make a guess about, yeah, I've smoked off and on and in social situations, or I used to smoke regularly when I was younger. Yeah, I've probably had 100 cigarettes or no, I've never smoked. I tried it once or twice. I haven't had 100 cigarettes. Some other examples would be asking how many times a person has gone to the doctor in this year, in the past calendar year, or or since January. That's one challenge that comes up when you say in the past year, are you talking about a calendar year since this time last year, or are you talking since January of this year? But you can imagine for a person who goes to the doctor a lot, that's a lot of doctor visits to count up. So you might decide to ask, did you, how many times have you gone in the last month? Or even, did you go to the doctor in the last month and make it even an easier question? All this to say, there's no one right question. It really is important that the questions you ask match your research questions. And so I've dealt with a lot of questionnaires where a client or a collaborator will come in with a research question and they'll have some measures that kind of get at what they want. But as we work it through, it becomes pretty clear that their research questions are actually different than the questions they thought were good measures. And so we end up revising the questions to match. Matt, thank you for joining me this month to discuss survey research. And I'm looking forward to having you back next month to continue talking with me about survey research. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And be sure to follow, like, and subscribe to On Research with CITI program to stay in the know. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also be interested in other podcasts from CITI program, including On Campus and On Tech Ethics. Please visit CITI program's website to learn more about all of our offerings at citiprogram.org. I also invite you to review our content offerings regularly as we are continually adding new courses, subscriptions, and webinars that may be of interest to you, like CITI program's Survey Research, Design, Planning, Implementation, and Ethics course. All of our content is available to you anytime through organizational and individual subscriptions.